Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. Some of us live as two people, who we are at home and who we are at work. But our work and our lives don't have to be two separate identities. The key to bringing our whole selves to work every day is tossing out the myth that emotions don't belong in the workplace. When we learn to embrace our emotions at work, we not only allow our most authentic selves to shine, we also create a more human workplace for our colleagues. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Liz Foslin. She's a leading voice on emotions at work. She's the co-author and illustrator of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, No Hard Feelings, and the upcoming book, Big Feelings. Many of you probably know her because of her viral Instagram account, Liz and Molly. Liz is also currently the head of communications and content at Humu. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited for this conversation. Like I said, I'm a big fan of yours. I I really want to just dig right in. Great. So tell us about yourself and tell us about how you became passionate about emotions, especially in the workplace. Yes. So I am an author and speaker. Uh, My two books are No Hard Feelings. And then the newest one is called Big Feelings. So No Hard Feelings looked at emotions at work and then Big Feelings grapples, it was very pandemic-inspired, grapples with some of the harder emotions that we all deal with. Um, I'm also the illustrator for both of those books. And then how I got interested in this, I, for way, way back context, my parents are both very stoic, uh, academic immigrants. And so I very much was raised in this environment where to be a professional, you don't fuss, you don't fail, and you certainly, certainly do not feel. Mm. Um, and then I studied economics and math, like very, you know, solid quantitative fields <laughs> that, that provide stability in life and got a job as an economic consultant after college. And on paper, it checked all the boxes for me. It was a tall building. I put on my, you know, nice suit every day. It was a very clearly laid out career path for me. Um, and I just really burnt out after about two years. Mm -hmm. I think the work wasn't creative. We would be waiting, um, to get work from lawyers. So we would often get the work at 6 PM and then I'd be in the office until 2 AM. And that just really wore on me after a while. Um, and so I just had to quit. I had no idea what I was going to do next. And that for me was the first time that I really had to face like, oh, I, I just didn't like this job. Um, and so I started researching maybe emotions do affect me and how like, it was just really scary to think about what on earth was I going to do next? Because this thing that I'd worked so hard towards had completely blown up in my face. And as I started doing that research, I also realized there was a lot 
that I could have done differently. It never, ever occurred to me that I could ever go to my manager and say, these are the parts of my job that I really like. Can I invest more in that? What does a career at this company look like if I'm focusing a bit more on the writing and making the charts? That was never something that I even knew you could do. Um, so I think it it was really valuable for me both to assess why that might not have been the right environment for me, but also I really think there were actions had I known to take them that would have improved the situation for myself dramatically. You co-author and you know your very popular Instagram account is is with you know is Liz and Molly, and she's also your co-author, like I said. So tell us about Molly. Tell us, I love the story of how you met. Can you share that with us? Yes. So Molly and I met when I was living in San Francisco in my mid-20s and had just taken a job in New York. I'm originally from the Chicago area. So somehow all the stereotypes about New York had really seeped into my brain. And I was so scared. I was like, I'm this sort of Midwestern, West Coaster, you know, happy, nice person, and everyone's just going to be mean to me, and I'm scared. Um, (laughs) So I frantically emailed all of my friends and said, can you please set me up on blind friend dates just so I have a safety net in New York? And Molly was one of those first friend dates. And I will say, I actually, people in New York are great. So that was not, the the stereotype did not bear out for me. Um, But Molly and I immediately bonded. We're both very proud introverts. We have very ridiculous uh, sleep habits. We both know the best sleep mask, earplugs, white noise machines. I so. love it. We need to talk about some of that. This yeah. is right up my yeah. alley. <laughs> Amazing. I've got lots of opinions. Um, but one of the core things was that we both had had these experiences very early in our careers of the job you really wanted that you were so elated to get. And then just for whatever reason, didn't work out. And emotional suppression also leading to physical pain. So for me, it had been migraines. For Molly, it was an eye twitch and then severe neck pain. Um, And so then we started at the time, I'd started dabbling in illustration, Molly was writing articles. And then we decided to start working on projects together. And the core of it, we realized was really emotions at work. And how do you, how do you even just start to talk about those and, and leverage them effectively. And your illustrations, I mean, is that something that, I mean, were you always artistic and just, you know, didn't think that it was something that you could bring to the workplace or that you could do at work? Like, how did that all, like, as a child, were you really artistic or was this something that kind of developed later in life? Yeah, you kind of nailed it. I would say (laughs) as a child, I was always doodling or Um, I went to Montessori school, so that was encouraged. Yeah. But I really had, when it came to, you know, being quote unquote a professional and having a career, I had this notion that my parents never said explicitly, but that still was banging around my brain was art is a fabulous way to be poor and unsuccessful. Um, And I think that is this like, academic immigrant mentality. Um, At least that's with my parents, it definitely was. And so I never, it just never occurred to me when I went to college to take an art class. Uh, It was like, I'm here to take all the economics classes, all the math classes that I can, and then, you know, go be lawyer, banker, 
something doctor something in that sphere mm-hmm. um and it wasn't i think when i i hit this i had to quit this job i actually started working as a barista at starbucks because i needed some income and had no idea what i was doing with my life and that was where i first saw I mean, Starbucks is so thoughtful about design and onboarding and the emotional experience of the store. And that was where I first started also drawing. And I started with data visualization because that was sort of the most natural next step from this quantitative background. And you still see that in the illustrations. There's lots of Venn diagrams. There's lots of charts. Uh, That's all still my familiar territory. I think that a lot of that is the reason that perhaps it resonates with the audience that it resonates with, because we can all relate to that in in, in some ways, right? Yeah, so, totally. <laughs> so let's talk about emotions. What are they and why are they important? Yeah, great question. So there was, we actually asked several emotions researchers and academics this, and no one really had the same answer. And then that... <laughs> It seems there's not sort of a perfect definition of emotion, but I would describe it as a sort of psychological response to some kind of stimulus. And that could be a thought, uh, an action. um, And why are they important? We evolved to have emotions. They're incredibly important. They contain data. They can motivate us to act in ways that serve ourselves. So I think there's this notion that you have rationality on one end of a spectrum and emotions are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. But if you think way back, if there was a lion charging towards you, it was really important that you felt terrified. Otherwise, you weren't going to move. And so in the modern world, there's, you know, there's so many smaller stimuli that cause emotions and not all of those are helpful to us necessarily. But at the core it's still useful to kind of reflect on what the emotion might be telling you about the situation that caused it. There's this myth, right? And it's pretty pervasive and perhaps um, hopefully changing (laughs) um, that emotions don't belong at work. You know, so many of us are, you know, have heard like, you know, check your emotions at the door, whether it's, you know, virtual these days or the actual physical door. Why does that exist? Explain to to us why that's wrong, like why that's not good thinking on behalf of, you know, leaders and colleagues alike. Yeah, I think it's, it goes back to this false dichotomy that I mentioned where emotions historically, I mean, thousands of years back have been seen as, you know, you're hysterical. If you have emotions, they cause you to act irrationally. And that's certainly not something we want in the business world where you're coming up with strategies and trying to plot out the next logical best step. I think it's also that for a long time, at least, um, and sort of the, again, quote unquote, professional world, that was the domain of men. And men have traditionally also been socialized, not to not have emotions, but to express certain emotions and not others. So empathy, no. Anger, more okay in some situations. Um, And so I think the opening up of white-collar knowledge worker jobs in particular uh, to a broader group of people, which is great, has also started to change that. But it's funny about why they matter. So my dad is a retired academic physician, um, very stoic, very, you know, is not into emotions. 
And when I told him at first that I was writing this book about emotions at work, I remember he just looked at me and said, I am so glad I'm retired. Like, I don't know what is going on in the world anymore. Um, And then I remember when he first got a copy, he looked at it. And then I, I talked to him on the phone a week later and he just couldn't wait to talk to me about this book because he said, I, this is so useful. I had a boss who was like this and I didn't know that I could manage up. And yes, I had an employee who went through this hard thing and I didn't know what to say. And it was fascinating that he just, he had been in all these situations we talk about, but just had never, it just never entered his mind that emotions might be involved or that emotions could be useful because he was so tied to this traditional notion of no feelings in the workplace. Um, so I think, you know, you can't, you just can't turn off your feelings no matter what you're doing. And so given that it's actually much more valuable to learn how to work through them, leverage them than to just continue to pretend like they don't exist and then actually not know what to do in these everyday situations. Like someone having a bad day, having to give feedback, being a leader, people want to follow. So, and what are, I guess, some of your... I don't want to necessarily call them like top tips, but you know, what do you tell, you know, in your trainings and your writings, like what do you teach to, to, you know, leaders and managers, but really just everyone, right. And in how to kind of lean into those emotions. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, that they're data, right. And so how do we actually use those emotions as data to tell us, you know, what's important to not only ourselves, but other people, I would imagine. Yeah. So I'll start with what we often share with leaders um, because we get the question a lot. I'm open to bringing emotions into the workplace or talking about them more, but how do I do that effectively? And we always, Molly and I always say, none of our work is an invitation to be a feelings fire hose. So we're definitely not saying, you know, like everything that's on your mind needs to start spilling out of your mouth. Um, So for leaders, we encourage them to practice something that we call selective vulnerability. Mm. And so it's pairing a moment of openness with a path forward. And you're really trying to walk this line between acknowledging what you're feeling, what others are feeling, creating space to talk about it, which all builds trust but you don't want to overshare because that destroys trust. So you, you know, like in a, let's say there's a global pandemic and everyone has to work remotely overnight. In one scenario, you come in and you say, okay, we're all remote now. What's the next agenda item? And that's not useful. The team, it's not a human response. They're not going to trust you. I'm sure they have tons of questions that you probably should be answering and concerns, but you also can't show up to that first meeting bawling and saying, I don't know what's going to happen to the business. I didn't sleep. I've never led in this environment. I'm just, I'm completely at the end of my rope. I don't even know where we go from here. That's going to completely destabilize the team and undermine your own abilities as a leader. And so selective vulnerability is this moment of openness. So you can say, this is really hard. I didn't sleep well last night. It's new territory. I'm anxious. I'm sure you're all concerned about your families." Let's take 10 minutes just to kind of go around, check in. Here are resources if you need them. 
here's what I'm going to do over the next three months to make sure that we're working together as a team, that the business is solid, that our relationships with clients are good. So it's this, I have emotions, there's space to talk about them, but I also have it together enough to lead us through this because that's my job as your manager. Yeah, I mean, I love that. And I think one of the things that that I hear most often is if I invite emotions into the workplace or into the conversation and I don't know how to fix the person or help the person, then what am I supposed to do? And so in other words, I guess people kind of shy away from, you know, being vulnerable or asking questions that might elicit an emotional response that they don't know how to respond to. What do you say in those situations? Yeah, I think the first is it's a completely natural impulse that I have both at work and in my personal life that if someone <laughs> comes to Yeah, the fix, yeah. exactly, uh-huh. which is someone yeah. comes to you with a problem and you're just I think especially if you are in any kind of strategy, you know, business um development type work. It's just like, okay, what are we going to do? What's the matrix? What's the next step? Here we go. Right. And often we undervalue just the power of listening um, and of being there and also of asking like, you know, what one thing can I do to best support you this week? And there's research that shows if you ask, is there anything I can do to support you? It's really easy for the other person to just say, no, that's okay. But by saying what one thing, and you can say two things or three things, it's just about getting specific. Usually the person can come up with one thing and then you can take action. So I think it's a balance of not immediately rushing to problem solving, creating space, just building that trust of you can come to me with this. Um, And again, as a leader saying like, there, I might not be able to do everything here because, you know, global pandemic is a great example. You can't change that. But saying, here's, here are some options. And then why don't you know what, what one thing can I do today, that would make you feel better? Yeah, I love that the specificity of it. But you know, also, um, the acknowledgement that, you know, and I think it's hard sometimes for for leaders to, you know, say, you know, I may not be able to fix it, or I might not know the Mm -hmm. answer. And that's okay. But I'm still, I'm still here for you. And I want to help you in whatever, you know, in, in the ways that I can do that. Yeah. Let's talk about, and I think this probably is, is more the focus of, of your, um, upcoming book, which I can't wait to get, but, you know, difficult emotions or, you know, big emotions, you call them oversized feelings. Like explain to me, you know, what those are or some examples of those. And then, you know, how do, I mean, is, is there something different in terms of how they manifest in the workplace? Yeah, so big feelings, as we call them, are these emotions that don't necessarily go away if you're doing all of the quote-unquote like steps. Um, So the, the genesis of this book was Molly and I had written No Hard Feelings about emotions at work in 2019. And then actually before the pandemic, we both went through really difficult periods at work and in our personal lives. Um, So I, you know, my father-in-law lost his 10-year battle with cancer. And like the last few months of that is, it's just brutal to watch. And then I also was having, again, 
probably from illustrating and I do a lot of computer heavy work. I was having carpal tunnel syndrome. So that also affected my physical and mental health. And I was journaling, I was exercising, I had a therapist, you know, I was following all the rules and just nothing was getting better. And then a global pandemic hit and then it really got worse. And the nature of conversations that Molly and I were having in our workshops, the tenor also changed dramatically. So pre-pandemic, it was very much, I don't know how to give my manager feedback or I'm a manager and I have an employee who maybe overshares, what do I do? Post-pandemic, it was suddenly, I have an employee who lives alone in a studio, is far away from their family. They've really started to disengage. I'm really concerned about them, not just as an employee anymore, but as a human. Um, and so that's the difference is this, it's not, it, there's usually not a simple, like, try these three things. It's more of how do you move through this? How do you get through those really hard days? And then how do you recover? Um, because it's more of a recovery process than like a have this one conversation and things might be better. Um, so that's the focus of the the new book is really, we look at things like anger, uncertainty so the anxiety caused by that perfectionism and then burnout is a big one too and what are some of the things that you talk about especially burnout obviously that's a you know a, a, a huge topic of discussion and I struggled with burnout you know seven years ago when no one was even talking about it so I didn't know mm-hmm. what I was going through but I also feel like there's so much conversation about it now, but how do you recognize it? And then what are like recovery strategies or what do you, what do you talk about in your book when you talk about burnout and some of those bigger feelings? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that you didn't even know what you were going through. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is, it's just so important to be able to name it. Cause then you can, I don't know if you Google or like searching online is the best thing, <laughs> but at least then you can, <laughs> yeah, you can ask for help or sort of start to figure out what to do. Um, yeah. So the, every chapter in the book, including the one on burnout, we first bust, bust a couple common myths and then go into some strategies. And with burnout, the two big myths, the first is that there will just be a sign one day mm-hmm. that flashes and tells you you're burnt out. It's usually that's not how it works. And we spoke to a burnout expert who had this line that I loved, which was burnout at first, it will tap you on the shoulder with a feather. And then later it will hit you with a bus. And your job is to listen when it taps you on the shoulder with a feather. And I think we're just really bad at doing that. And so that's when you, one of the the sort of earliest sign, the two that really resonate with me are, when everything becomes too much. So you get an email in your inbox and you just can't deal with that email or a friend texts you about dinner and you get upset with that friend because you're like, I have so much on my plate. How dare you text me about dinner? Um, This has happened to me. And that's just a sign that you need a break. And then the other one is this thing called revenge bedtime procrastination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which for listeners, it sounds like you are very familiar with it. I am. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, for, for listeners, it's it's when you have had a packed day, you haven't had any time to yourself, you're tired, you go to bed, and instead of resting and sleeping, which is probably what you need, you get on social media or you 
just do whatever and stay up hours past the point of, you know, really wanting to sleep. And it's just because you need that time to yourself. You feel like it's the only time in the day that you really have to mentally decompress. And that's also a sign that you haven't built enough breaks into your day. Um, And so tips there are really, you know, it's not rocket science, but really trying to take the breaks that you can take your vacation. If you're a manager, making that a collective practice. So it's, you know, it's actually kind of hard, especially if you're a junior employee to take a 20 minute break in the afternoon, you might feel guilty, you might not be sure if that's something the organization really wants you to do. So as a manager, setting the example, having your team put 10 minutes on their calendar as like a shared team experience of this 10 minutes is always going to be a break every day. Um, And then one other thing that I've found useful is also just getting comfortable with working at 80% sometimes. Um, I used to do this all the time, which is, you know, there's natural ebbs and flows to how much work you have. And when I had a slower afternoon, instead of saying the work will come, (laughs) I will get answers to those emails, I'm just going to have a cup of tea, I would start all these new projects in this frantic frenzy. And then when the work did come, suddenly I needed to be at 150% and I was completely overwhelmed. So I think it's also getting comfortable with this uncomfortable thing of you don't have to be quote unquote productive all the time. And that's actually better for your long-term success. Yeah. I, I mean, that resonates with me so much. I, even now when there's, you know, slower days and and we, and it's interesting that we define slower days by the number of emails that we get, right? Yeah. It's really <laughs> sad. The number of emails that we get actually makes us less productive in the things, yeah. that we, you know, the, the, the real work or the, you know, the deep thinking that we need to do for real work. But, you know, on the days that I get less emails, I mean, even now there's like, there'll be moments where I'm like, wow, I wonder if everything's okay. I mean, I'm not getting hundreds of emails today like what's totally <laughs> yeah. I know I, I don't feel like, completely right yeah like I have to step back and be like okay wait a minute I'm not getting hundreds of emails today I could actually like you know sit and take a break or do some deep thinking or journaling or like go for a walk or you know like yeah. I have to remind myself like hey that's actually a really good day <laughs> Totally. Yeah. That so resonates a lot. That, you know, that our, our mind plays tricks on us. Yeah. So a couple of times you've, you know, you've kind of mentioned this concept of like oversharing and obviously there's a really wide range of emotional expression and some people are more comfortable expressing and sharing a lot and some don't express at all. So is there a soft spot in between the two? Like, what do you recommend there? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, everyone sits on a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have under emoters. And these are people that are more closed off. They usually have great poker faces. And it's a product of how you were raised, your personality, the environment that you're in. So this is all kind of context dependent. It can change in different situations. But again, we all have this sort of base comfort level of expressing emotions. Uh, so that's under emoters who tend to be more stoic. And then on the other side, you have over emoters. And these are people, they're a complete open book. You feel something, everyone knows immediately. Um, and then in between is even emoters. So people who kind of bridge the gap between those two. And the best leaders 
they, you know, there's not a good or bad tendency, but the best leaders tend to act as even emoters. And so, for example, if you know that you're an under emoter, and Molly and I have an assessment for this on our website, people also usually, when we explain this, have a really good idea of where they sit on the spectrum. We have people who are like, oh, I'm an over emoter, 100%. Um, but if you're an under emoter, you know, the positive is, people will often come to you to talk through a problem because you can be very cool and collected and kind of really, you won't have a strong reaction, which can be nice sometimes. But the downside is it can be hard for people to trust you initially. Um, so Molly shares the story. Molly is an under And she said, especially with client-facing work, she really had to practice meeting people for the first time and saying like, I'm really excited to meet you. I'm excited to kick off this project because that was not her natural tendency. But she kind of needed to start the relationship off on a good foot. And so that was her leaning more towards even a motor. Over motors, it's really about pausing, giving yourself the time so that you don't have a reaction. You can formulate a response. Um, the upside of being an even a motor is you get really excited for people and that's lovely and that's can be really motivational for a team. So I think it's, and again, we have a lot of resources about this online. I think other people have written about it as well, but it's understanding where you sit on the spectrum, harnessing the positives of your tendency, but then also understanding like the shortcomings and how you might want to correct for those in certain situations, whether that's opening up a little more or again, thinking again, do I really want to say this? Words are like toothpaste. When they're out, you can't put them back in the tube. So just taking that split second of how do I want to show up in this moment if you're an over-emoter? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to – I think I'm going to have to look up some of those resources myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and you talked earlier too about this concept of, of selective vulnerability. So how do we learn to be selectively vulnerable? Because I would imagine – if you're an over a motor or under a motor, like that, those are connected in some way, right? Yes, totally. So selective vulnerability is sort of the, the perfect expression of even emotion. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I would say learning it's, it's about practice. Um, it also, sometimes we're just forced to learn it based on feedback. So one of the people we interviewed was Kim Malone Scott, who wrote radical candor, amazing book on giving feedback. And she said she always saw herself as a cool, calm and collected manager. Until one day, one of her reports came up to her and told her, just want to flag that the whole team knows what kind of day we're going to have by your mood when you walk in the door in the morning. And that was startling to her. Um, and so what she started doing was a form of selective vulnerability. So she would in the morning, especially if she knew that she had been in traffic or it had just been a really hectic morning already, she would walk in and say, hey, it's been a morning. I just need to get my coffee and sit down for a moment. It has nothing to do with you. And so again, it's this acknowledgement. It's totally fine to have a bad day. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to have hectic, especially I think in our wild back-to-back -back meeting world. It's just flagging that. She went into no detail. So it wasn't oversharing, but it was a nice signal to the team of you don't need to be anxious because you perceive that you've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. What I'm feeling, it's just normal, but it's nothing to do with you and I'll be fine in a couple minutes. So I think that's a nice example of um, 
kind of being forced <laughs> to figure something out. But again, this balance of flagging the feeling without going into detail, but it provides a lot of stability and comfort for other people. I mean, what I also love about that is that, you know, it gives, as the leader, it gives permission for everybody else to do the same thing when they, you know, when they need a moment. Yeah, totally. So can, I mean, does selective vulnerability like change based on the context that you're in or is it constant? Yeah, it definitely changes. So this is kind of new. I mean, new, maybe five, 10 years ago in the academic research, but it's this thing called an emotional culture. So a cognitive culture is normally what we talk about company culture. So that's be innovative, you know, deliver exceptional customer experiences. Emotional culture is formed by the small gestures and behaviors. So it's not verbal. uh, It's very implicit. And like a, a very traditional bank will have inevitably a different emotional culture than a big tech company with like a ball pit in the lobby. <laughs> Those are just two very different things. And then there can even be different emotional cultures within the same organization. So the classic example that academics point to is a hospital. So you have nurses and doctors when they're with patients, they're going to act in one way. But then if they're in the break room together, goofing off or blowing off steam, that's a very different emotional culture. And so what selective vulnerability means, and this is where it gets a little hard to give advice because it's this kind of moving, hard Mm -hmm. to pin down thing. It's really, you know, what, what vulnerability is going to land well, is going to resonate with people while still preserving that stability and psychological safety in that particular environment. And that might even look different if you're a manager with one report to the other. Um, if one report, you know, you know, like isn't very emotionally expressive, you might share a little less than with another one. Um, so yes, it's definitely kind of sensing what is the environment you're in. It's also, unfortunately, some of this is, you know, based on your identity and how people are going to respond to you because of that. Um, ideally, you're in an environment where that doesn't have to be a factor but sometimes it is. And so just to kind of be honest about, there might be something that you need to think about as well. So all of this, um, I mean, as I think about it, requires a, a lot of self-awareness, right? And kind of knowing yes. you know, who you are and being able to recognize your own feelings and being able to you know, walk into a room or a meeting and sense what's going on, um, you know, you know, in, in that moment. So are there any, is there any guidance that you have on kind of how we develop that self-awareness in order to be able to be more tuned into these types of things? Yeah, I think some of it starts with just identifying, you know, I I think journaling in some sense can be useful if Mm -hmm. you take a week and just write down here were the moments when I felt really stressed. Here were situations when I didn't know what to say. Um, so it's useful also to start to understand. Most of us tend to have patterns. So I really go through a slump in the afternoon. And I've noticed that during that time, I will show up to meetings and just become like agenda robot, where I'm tired, I just want to get off the video call. And so because I know that, because I've identified that within myself, I actually take time before the meeting, take a deep breath and say, 
we're going to start off with a personal question. <laughs> we're going to bond. It's going to feel bad at first, but I actually really enjoy that once we get into it. Um, and then you can also ask for feedback on this from a trusted colleague. So keyword being trusted, but you know, a peer or maybe your manager, you can say, Hey, I'm really working on selective vulnerability. I'm working on creating space for my people to come to me with problems. Um, can I run a couple scenarios by you? Can you watch me in meetings and give me feedback? Uh, so it's, it's kind of both looking inward and then also looking outward for a couple of mentors who you think do this really well and asking them to help you learn and grow in that way. I love that in particular. I mean, identifying those that we think do it really well and asking for their help. Um, I love yeah. that. So you mentioned stress and we, you know, we've all been experiencing an unusual and perhaps extraordinary amount of stress over the last couple of years. So how does stress impact our emotions? Yeah. So when we are in a heightened state of emotion, which stress definitely puts us into, we tend to have outsized reactions to everything. So when you're very anxious, that's when a small comment, a small email might feel worse to you than it would if you were not in this anxious state. Um, there's also lots of research that shows when we're in this, especially with stress, heightened stressful state, we perform less. Um, we tend to take, depending kind of on your personality, you might take more risky uh, options. You might make the less risky choice. So it can really skew your behavior in ways that you might not want it to. Um, so it's yeah, it's extremely detrimental. And I think in the modern world, we also, this comes from a book called Burnout, which I highly recommend. And the, and the authors say in the modern world, we never have time to complete the stress cycle. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, you would run away from a predator. And if you got away, you would just feel elated, you could sit down, and you would complete the stress cycle and all the cortisone and the you know, bad um stress hormones would kind of dissipate within your body. But then nowadays, you you know, you have the email, then you go to the video call, then you go to the in-person coffee, then you go to the messaging platform, then you go to like social media, and it's just this constant barrage. And so we, we are just in this constant state of stress, which is really detrimental. Obvious things to do about that are to, you know, create, you know, breaks in your day away from, you know, away from the screen, <laughs> perhaps mm -hmm. get out in nature. Um, but what are, I guess, what are some of your favorites to kind of complete or, you know, break that constant cycle of stress? I think one is the, which has come up a lot in conversations is the after work ritual. Mm -hmm. So Cal Newport, who's an author, he wrote Deep Work, also a great book. He is, I think, an engineer by training. And so he has a very technical <laughs> ritual at the end of the day, which is he'll close his computer or his laptop and say, schedule shutdown complete. And that's his termination phrase. Mm -hmm. And to him, that signals work is over. It's now time to transition into my home life. And that's one way of kind of stopping the stress cycle is just to really physically close the thing that is pinging you all the time. Um, Interesting research around rituals also shows that even people who don't believe in the power of rituals, when they're forced to do them, they feel better. So even if you think what I'm saying is baloney, just try it. <laughs> you know, it might work. And then 
The other one, I'll so I have a like our company's internal messaging platform on my phone, the app, and I will delete it every night at 7pm. And on weekends, I delete it and then I reinstall it in the morning, which is maybe extreme, but it is <laughs> the only way that I won't check it obsessively. <laughs> That you do what you do what you have to do, yeah. And I love Cal Newport's yeah. work. Um, I don't know if you've read his his more recent book, A World Without Email, but yeah, that was very enlightening to me and probably reflects, you know, some of the comments I made earlier about <laughs> about being stressed when I'm not getting enough emails, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so last question for you. I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of you know team leaders and what leaders can do. But what about if you're a team member and you are struggling emotionally at work or you think that one of your colleagues might be struggling emotionally? Is there something that you can do or say, um, you know, to others, but, you know, also, I mean, respecting boundaries, knowing that people have different comfort levels with, with these things. Like, what do we do as colleagues? Yeah, I think this is where it comes down to really understanding the emotional culture of your organization. So if it's very open, um, people are comfortable talking about emotions, then I think it, you know, probably it's a little more straightforward just saying, hey, just wanted to check in with you. Um, You know, if there's anything I can do, let me know. I think often just asking someone to grab coffee, checking in with them at the beginning of the meeting, it's about intentionally creating space for them to share a little more and to show that you're interested in their well-being and in starting those conversations. When it comes to talking to your manager, I think that's, again, if you're in this open environment, often you can just bring something like that to your manager and say, I'm really going through this hard time or here's something I'm struggling with. Can you help me do X, Y, Z? I think it's always useful to come with an ask um, because it makes it a little easier for them to help you. In more closed off emotional cultures, I would come with a need. So if you find that you're really anxious, um, let's say about a looming deadline, instead of going to your manager and saying, I feel so much stress about this deadline, I just, I feel completely overwhelmed. I'd recommend, what is the need? So maybe you need to figure out your priorities. You need to scale down the scope of a project and going to the manager and saying, hey, I listed my priorities for this week. Here's everything I'm working on. Can you help me make sure that I'm spending the most time on the most important projects? And usually, they might not even know the full extent of all the things on your plate. And then that'll just be a really, really useful conversation. And because you're addressing the underlying need, you will actually feel better emotionally afterwards, even though you never really talked about emotions. I love that strategy. Yeah, asking asking for help and asking for someone to help you prioritize things. So, well, mm-hmm. Liz, thank you so much for this conversation, um, filled with you know so many good actions and so much wisdom. Um, I, I just you know I think people are going to get a lot out of it. So, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and also for it's always fun for sharing and commiserating <laughs> over email. <laughs> Absolutely. And and thank you for the work that you do. Your books are your book your books are amazing. Some of the favorite, you know, on my bookshelf. I can't wait to get the new ones. Oh <laughs> amazing. Thanks so much. I'm so grateful Liz could be with us today to talk about emotions at work. 
Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the Workwell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword Workwell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the Workwell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.